But let's go ahead and make our way to the the book of Micah today, chapter 4. We're going to look at it, all 13 verses, uh, in a message that has been entitled From Devastation to Restoration. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what God's in the business of doing, amen? Uh, From taking our lives from one place to another. So let's take our hearts to Him even now. Uh, Lord God, we just thank You so much for Your love for us. We thank You, God, so much uh, just for all that You have done for us. And we pray now, Lord, that You would help us to have ears to hear You. And uh, God, as always, we just pray uh, that You would move and minister and have Your way. Uh, In Jesus' name, Amen. Deception leads to destruction. Micah had prophesied that because the heads, the rulers, the priests, and prophets were leading the people astray, uh, teaching, preaching, prophesying for pay, judging for a bribe, that Zion would be plowed like a field, uh, leveled to the ground. Jerusalem would become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. And chapter 3, if you remember with me, uh, ends in darkness, destruction, and devastation all brought on by deception. And so it's no wonder that you and me that we find over and over again throughout our New Testament the words, do not be deceived. Because deception will wreck and, and, and work ruin into your life. Both presently and if your eyes aren't open ultimately to see Jesus for who He is, then eternally. But aren't you glad? Man, I'm so grateful that God never leaves His people in the dark. It's true that prophecy will tell us what's to come with regard to the judgments of God. And we should be grateful that God is faithful to warn the world of what's to come should it continue down the path of willful rebellion and rejection of His Word and His ways. But ladies and gentlemen, listen, if, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you will know we give God praise, amen, because we know how the book ends. And, uh, you know, the final chapter in the book that God has written is not one of darkness. It is not one of destruction. It's not one of despair or hopelessness. The Word of God promises to ultimately, again, eternally bring the people of God out into His glorious light. And the end of it all will be filled with both awe and wonder. And though God isn't finished warning His people of what's to come as we read throughout the remainder of Micah's prophecy, chapter 4 does indeed bring us to a new section of the book. We turn the page, uh, proverbially speaking, from grievous retribution to glorious restoration. And what we see God promise to do with Israel nationally He can do with your life personally. I don't know, maybe you feel like you're in verse 12 of chapter 3. And because of the things that you've done, your life is in ruins. There's just nothing left of substance. Well, turn to Jesus Christ. Because we serve a God who specializes in the renewing, the restoring of that which was previously left in ruin. And so from devastation to a glorious restoration, let's read. We actually are going to back right up into the verse, uh, the 12th verse of the third chapter, and you'll get a sense of how it kind of falls into the flow of chapter 4. So let's draw our attention. Verse 12, chapter 3, Therefore because of you, remember the priests, the prophets, the rulers, the leaders, and all, who were uh, teaching, preaching for pay, judging for a bribe. He says, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins. By the way, Zion, Jerusalem, same place, okay? And the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now chapter 4, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. 
And He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore." And so chapter 4 begins like a, like a shaft of light bursting through the darkness. Yes, judgment, discipline, tough times are ahead of you presently, God would say, uh, but something glorious awaits you ultimately. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you study prophecy... You kind of got to buckle up. You got to tune in. You got to pay attention because often you'll discover that the prophet gives little to no regard for or to a timeline. Okay? There's a lot of what's called prophetic telescoping. Okay? What that means is that it can take you from what's happening currently, whatever the day may be, to what would take place perhaps hundreds, maybe even thousands of years later in the span of a single verse. Now, you know, then it can just snap back to present time or anywhere in between now and then. And the question that confronts us is um, why? (laughs) I mean, why do the prophets speak in this fashion, this now, then, somewhere in between, back and forth kind of way? And the truth is, I have no idea. Um, It it could be that since uh, God isn't bound by time, you know, he lives outside of any kind of restraints of time that he will on the occasion speak without regard to time. Time is nothing to God. The end, the beginning, he's in the eternal now. You know, we read in the, the book of Isaiah where God said, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. Now, how does he, how does he verify or ratify who he is? He said, I am God, there is none like me. Notice, declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. God alone can speak without regard for time. He knows the end from the beginning and He declares from ancient times things that are not yet done. And here in Micah chapter 4, God begins to speak of a time that would take place more than 2,700 years in the future to a time not yet realized even today. A time that we would refer to as we've come to call the millennial reign of Christ. An age in which the kingdom of Christ will be made manifest upon the earth with a universal peace, prosperity, security, and safety, the likes of which this world has never seen. In the popular passage, often quoted uh, at Christmas time, it's found in Isaiah chapter 9. We read it like this For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Verse 1 of Micah chapter 4 tells us both the when and the what concerning what's to come for Israel and her king. And though Jerusalem would be initially plowed under uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and and again then under the Roman uh, commander Titus in 70 A.D., 
Micah now looks down the prophetic pipeline to unveil a beautiful end. And it's not going to end in devastation, but in restoration. Not in darkness, but in light. Now, when will this happen? He tells us here in the very first verse, he says that it will come to pass in the latter or the last days. Okay? Now, what will happen in those days? So this is when it's going to happen, but what's going to happen? Well, he says it again in the very first verse. The Lord's house shall be, notice, established on top of the mountains and be exalted above the hills. The temple in Jerusalem will be both established, and then it won't be moved, in other words. It will be established and exalted as the, we would say in our modern vernacular, the capital of a one-world government. We might say that Jerusalem, I mean, as far as our country is concerned and our understanding is concerned, Jerusalem will be like the um, Washington, D.C. of the world, and the temple will be sort of like, you know, the White House, so to speak. If you were to turn, it's interesting, you know, when we read through this passage, maybe it sounds familiar with you, this whole, you know, they'll, they'll turn their swords and their, you know, pruning, you know, their hooks into pruning shears and swords into plowshares, and they'll not learn war. And you're going, this sounds familiar. I didn't know it was in Micah. Well, listen, maybe that's because the passage that you're familiar with, if you were, I'm not encouraging you to in this moment, you can write it down and read it later, but if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 2 and read verses 2 through 4 of his prophecy, you would read virtually these same words identically that Micah wrote in the first three verses of his fourth chapter. Now, this sort of makes sense to us because they were contemporaries. They were prophesying concurrently, and so it would make sense that God would inspire them in a manner in which the one would emphasize and underscore this message of this ultimate peace and safety and prosperity, especially in the light of the, uh, you know, the undoing that's in front of the nation presently in their time. But in my mind, family, if God takes the time to say the same thing twice, then we do well to slow our roll, right? To slow down and pay attention to what He's saying. God, here's, here's the kind of the overview, right? God has a plan for the nation of Israel. That's what he's saying. That it, it's not going to end here. I've got a plan for you that's going to carry you ultimately on out even into eternity. The day is coming when God will establish Israel as the one world global superpower. And Jesus will rule and reign upon the earth from the temple in Jerusalem. Can somebody say, praise God? I mean, His house will be, well, the words are established, immovable, and exalted above any other nation on the face of the earth. You see, God made a promise, didn't He? to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now certainly we find fulfillment in that through Jesus Christ offering peace with God, salvation to all of mankind through the blood of His cross. But guys, I want you to realize that it flows Farther, It flows further still. Not only is the blessing there spiritually to all of mankind presently, but practically as well as it flows on out into the millennial reign or kingdom of Christ. Israel will be prominent above every other nation. Little Israel and peoples, we read, will flow 
to it. Look at verse 2. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Listen, when Jesus is ruling and reigning upon the earth, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will flow. That's the word, will flow. The idea is like a river into a restored, redeemed Jerusalem to hear Jesus personally teach the Word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, can you imagine that? I mean, people will be like, hey, forget Bora Bora. You know, forget about Cancun. We're, we're, we're taking our vacation to Jerusalem this year, and we're going to go and see Jesus so that we can learn the Word and ways of God directly from Him that we might walk in His paths. For out of Zion, we read, the law or the word will go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So guys, the idea is that people will be streaming in. Missionaries will be streaming out. God's word will be going forth like a torrent from Jerusalem, bringing blessing throughout the earth. Wouldn't that be incredible? Now, if you'll allow me to digress for just a moment. I, you know, I'm not altogether sure. Um, I'm not altogether sure what an amillennialist, you know what an amillennialist is, right? Yeah, and uh, someone who does not, you know, it's like a theist believes God, a theist does not believe in God. So uh, a millennialist, right? Would, and we're talking like millennials, like if you're 28 to 40 or whatever it is. Uh, I don't know the age demographic specifically. Uh, but um, if you're a millennialist, well, then, you know, you, you believe that Jesus will literally rule and reign upon, you know, the, the earth. But an amillennialist would not subscribe to a literal reign of Christ upon the earth. Um, and, and I'm just not altogether sure what, and I don't, I'm not meaning to uh, degrade or in any way belittle someone who has this perspective or opinion, uh, but I don't know what one would do with a passage like this because amillennialism would say that it's that the reign of Christ upon the earth is metaphoric it's symbolic that Jesus currently reigns upon the earth through his church um, but you know when we come across passages like this I mean would you agree that you have to do some pretty serious prophetic gymnastics like some twists and turns to persuade people that presently in some form or fashion God's house is exalted and established upon the earth I mean you, you know the, the house of God isn't exalted it's disdain people don't want more of Jesus they want less of Jesus they want to get God out of the schools they want Jesus to not hey look you want to talk about Buddha fine you want to talk about Islam fine you want to talk about Eastern mysticism fine you want to talk about Jesus Christ we're not having it you know uh, this this world you're telling me has a heart to learn God's word and walk in his ways I don't see it the evidence that abounds demonstrates that the Desire in the heart of man today currently flows. That's the word, right? Flow. They will flow. Well, currently, it seems to me that the desire of the heart of man, mankind flows in the opposite direction. But the day is coming when the heads, the rulers... Right? Think about your present administration. Or you know, in other nations as well. You know, what's happening in Australia? What's happening in China? What's happening in Korea? I mean, are the heads of the nations flowing to Jerusalem to learn the ways and the words of God? But the day is coming when the world powers will all be rallying, all be conferencing in Jerusalem to learn from Jesus that they might know Him and honor Him throughout the earth. By the way, this tells us something about the millennial kingdom. You will still, by you, I mean mankind, not you because you're there, but you'll still, people will still need to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. 
you're not saved just because you live during this time period. Does that make sense? Um, people will still have a sin nature. Now again, you won't because by then you will have your resurrection body. We could go into this study, but ultimately you discover that as the book of Revelation and, and Peter and all say that you will be ruling and reign, and we shall reign on the earth. You will be ruling and reigning as kings and priests upon the earth unto your God. But those who come into the kingdom, having survived the great tribulation, guys, they still have this sin nature. They still need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. They'll be having children populating the earth and their longevity of life will be there once again. The Bible, I believe it's in Isaiah, declares that the one who dies at a hundred years of age will be like the death of a tragic child, a tragic death of a child. And so people will be living and, 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 and prospering and all of these things, but there, there will be sin nature still present, you see, upon the earth. People still need to believe on Jesus. And not everyone will do exactly as He desires. There will be conflict that needs to be settled. And He'll settle it directly and decisively. Either personally or through you as His emissary, His ambassador. Look at verse 3. It says, He shall judge. You see, if everyone was... was uh, uh, established in perfect righteousness there was no sin nature why would why would he need to judge between there would be no no re, there'd be nothing to judge so he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off and they shall beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore there's something about that that just resonates wonderfully in your spirit, isn't there? Conflict will be settled directly, decisively, again, either by Jesus Himself, He shall judge between many peoples, or perhaps through you, His emissaries, rebuking strong nations afar off. You will administer justice and righteousness on His behalf amongst the nations. People are like, well, what will we be doing? That's what you'll be doing. But there will be no more war. The whole world will be subjugated to the Word of God. And the Lord's decision uh, you know, in the midst or amid disputes will be recognized as both righteous and binding. And as a result of every nation's common allegiance to Jesus, what we see is hostility will cease. Instruments of war will become instruments of agriculture and commerce. Or another way to understand that, there will be, you know, what's that? The, it's kind of comical, you know, that when someone's like, well, if you, if you had one wish, what would it be? Everyone always says, world peace, you know. Well, there will be world peace under the reign of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And again, it's not that the reign of Jesus alone will, uh, sorry if that scared you, will change. Uh, let me make sure my little antenna, sometimes that'll do that. It's not that the reign of Jesus alone will change the heart of man. People will still need to trust in Him, His work on their behalf for their personal salvation during this time. But war armed conflict, it won't be tolerated. Things will be settled before they escalate to that degree. In Psalm chapter 2, again, you can just etch it down. Maybe even out there on the side of, of verse 3 there, you can look at it or correlate it later. It, we learn there that if people step out of line and refuse to step back into line, they'll be dashed like a potter's vessel. Uh, things simply will not be allowed to escalate. It's a time when justice, righteousness will be rewarded rather than scorned. But family, imagine, if you will, not needing a military presence. You know, not needing any kind of defense budget for the, your nation 
wherever you I mean, as for me, listen, I'm all for the military. Love it. Glad we have it. Grateful for it. I believe defense spending absolutely necessary in the world we live in today. We need many times, not only personally, but definitely nationally to be armed. But hundreds upon hundreds of billions of dollars are spent every year in our nation alone uh, on national defense. Now imagine if all those resources, along with the defense budget of every other nation in the world, however many hundreds of millions or billions of dollars they spent, could be channeled into agriculture and commerce. Hunger, starvation, poverty would cease to exist in the world. Prosperity would abound. And when Jesus reigns, it'll be a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity. Now, going back to our amillennial kind of quandary or conundrum, how do you presently, in the world we live in, currently, globally, how do you interpret nations turning instruments of war into instruments of peace and prosperity? How do you get from where we are in the global tension to what this says will be? Do you see what I mean? This has to happen ultimately prophetically in the reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. Now look at verse 4. It says, but ever, so they, need, they won't learn war anymore, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You might underline that. What's another way to understand that? You can count on it. Guys, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. Think about what we've read with unparalleled peace, unparalleled prosperity, no war, absolute you know, safety and security. It's as if the Lord knows that the words He's speaking are so incredible. They're so fantastical that if it weren't coming directly from Him, no one would believe it. I mean, you're telling me, again, unparalleled world peace, prosperity, safety, security, no way, don't see it, never going to happen. Micah reminds us, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts, that is the commander of all the forces of the universe, has spoken. Everyone shall sit under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. What's the idea there? That no one will be in want, and no one will have to covet uh, what their neighbor has because everyone's going to have plenty. You, you won't need to fear losing it or anyone taking it from you. No one shall make them afraid. Perfect peace. Perfect security when Jesus is upon the throne. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to go back and just kind of glance over these first four verses and look at the freedom, understand the freedom with which Christ makes people free. When Jesus is upon the throne, there will be freedom from ignorance, right? It says in verse 2, He will teach us His ways. Listen, when the Lord teaches you His ways, you are free from ignorance and the ramifications thereof. Think about how binding ignorance can be. You know what I'm talking about? I mean... There's a reason why people say things to the extent of, uh, man, if I had only known then <laughs> what I know now, you know, how much more wisely I would have behaved or the decision I would have made had I only known. And Jesus brings freedom 
from, from ignorance, from that lack of knowledge. Under the reign of Christ, there will be freedom from war. Verse 3, neither shall they learn war anymore. Freedom from armed conflict. Not only freedom from war, but freedom from want. Verse 4, everyone shall sit under his. There will be personal ownership. His vine, his fig tree. The idea being everyone will have plenty. All will be blessed tremendously under the reign of Jesus Christ. And finally, there's freedom from fear. Verse 4 again, no one shall make them afraid. Imagine, no need to lock your doors at night. No, no need to lock your vehicle when you run to the store or you're in an unfamiliar part of town. No reason to fear the dark alleys or again, unfamiliarity in whatever city one may be. Like you go in and sometimes places look kind of slummy, but the truth is it's just because they're old. They're really safe, but you're not from there and you're, you're kind of like you know on the edge. You know what I'm talking about? There will be none of that. No one will be on the edge. No one will be worried. No one will be afraid of unfamiliarity. Freedom from ignorance, from war, from want, from fear, to which we say, even so, amen, come Lord Jesus. This glorious future, it's predicated upon two things. Number one, the promise of God. And number two, the provision of God. The mouth of of the Lord of hosts has spoken, and He will surely bring it to pass. Now look at verse 5. We read, For all people walk each in the name of His God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So here's that prophetic telescoping again, right? Micah says currently where they're at presently with all the idolatry and everything going on, uh, people are walking each in the name of his God. But the day is coming when we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And great blessing and peace will proceed. Now, there is another little thought I should throw out with regard to uh, verse 5, and that is as one I've already established that in the millennial kingdom, none will be compelled to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everyone will be believers per se. They may have a different uh, you know, uh, persuasion. There will be those who don't submit to Christ in their heart. Uh, but, you know, and that's certainly true, but I tend to see this as a now-then kind of comparison based upon the context that Micah is prophesying into. Uh, but you're free to disagree with me on that. In verse 6 we read, In that day says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now we've spoken to this principle before. We won't linger on it very long here, but it's in verse 6. And that is that God's restoration isn't only for the strong. It's not only for the formidable individuals. His tendency, when, when you study His Word, you discover is to not use the strong, but the weak. God will build His nation from the lame, the outcast, the afflicted. Listen, there's nothing wrong. I want to throw this out there. There's nothing wrong with being the biggest guy, the brightest guy, you know, the best looking guy. As for me, I only get two of the three. I'll let you figure those out on your own, which those are. Um, But what do you mean you know? Who said that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the idea here is that God doesn't need that. 
the, the biggest guy, the brightest guy, the best. You know, he doesn't need any of that. In fact, it's much more rare that God employs that. Um, again, doesn't mean that he doesn't save everyone, love everyone equally. You know, salvation is whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But specifically, biblically contextual, I'm speaking into that capacity as it pertains to his glory. You see, he tends to use the least of these. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul reminded them of how when he was with them, uh, it was in fear, it was in trembling. You know, he wasn't a polished presenter of God's Word. He wasn't an excellent orator of Scripture. It wasn't about persuasive words of human wisdom. The message was simply Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It was a demonstration. Because that way when people were saved, it wouldn't be like, wow, they really responded to that persuasive Paul. Man, he was really able to wax eloquently. He was a great orator, you see, and people just were swooned by all the words he had to say. No, when people were saved after Paul was finished presenting the gospel it was obviously a demonstration of the spirit and of power why so that their faith wouldn't be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God the attention shouldn't fall to the instrument but to the one who wields it you see let's leave Micah chapter 4 I say we wouldn't be here very long one more little reference and go to first uh, Corinthians okay so leave Micah keep your finger in Micah and go to first Corinthians chapter 1 the very first chapter of uh, the book of first Corinthians which I know you know how to get there we were just there just came out of that book so uh, how many of you are there first Corinthians chapter 1 come on keep going let's keep going okay good good and now allow me to draw your attention to the 26th verse. And it's a familiar passage, but it's a little longer, so I didn't want to just throw it on the screen for you. I wanted you to read it for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing things which are. Why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And that's essentially what we have here in Micah chapter 4 and verse 6. Guys, God does not think like we think. He's not looking for the most popular person so that when the work is done, the glory goes to whom it belongs, to the Lord. And again, we see the special underscoring in verse 8. The promises are so magnanimous. They're so glorious that they seem too good to be true. And so he vows again, to you it shall come. However, before the beautiful end, there will be interim pain. Like the labor pangs of a pregnant woman. The end is beautiful, but its birth, it's brought to pass through much pain. Now look at verse 9. We read, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field. And notice, this is big, to Babylon you shall go. 
and there you shall be delivered. The Lord will redeem you from the hand. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemy. So here, look, we've been down the prophetic pipeline. Here he snaps back, right, to the present predicament. Yes, the end is glorious for Israel, but presently, that is in Micah's day, what we're reading here, there was still grievous retribution to find them for their sin, their rebellion against the ways and the Word of God. Now, in part, he tells us, he alludes to, he shows us that it's because of a lack of godly leadership. No king in your midst. Your counselor has perished, you see. So in panic and pain, they would be carried away into captivity. And there would be no king. There would be no counselor to save them. And like a woman in labor, there would be nothing they could do to stop the agony that they must endure. Now they would try to flee, he says, flee into the field and all that. They would look to live in the fields as they're being driven from their homes, as their, as their city and, and nation is being invaded. But he says, to Babylon you shall go. Guys, why is this such an incredible prophecy? Well, it's because uh, the, when you think through historically, the balance of world power at the time Micah wrote this, uh, it would have been probable to think that they'd have been taken to Nineveh. Remember, it was Assyria who was invading Israel and encroaching even up. They, they went into Judah uh, and were kind of knocking on Jerusalem's door there for a while, and God defended them, God protected them. But Assyria was the global superpower of the day. Babylon was, listen, at best, a fledgling little city-state somewhere on the map along the Euphrates River. That's all they were at this time. But within a hundred years, they would become a world empire. And Nebuchadnezzar would seize and destroy Jerusalem and take the southern kingdom into captivity. Pretty incredible prophecy uh, in reality. Now look at verse 11. We'll read through the remainder of our chapter. It says, Now also many nations... Okay. Also, many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to a threshing floor or to the threshing floor. And he says in verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, I will make your hooves bronze, you shall beat in many in pieces, you shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. So now he zooms back down the prophetic pipeline. So we've gone from down into the millennial kingdom, snap back into the present kind of reality of what's awaiting them right in front of them. Now he's going back down the line just previous, setting up the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishing of the said kingdom that he began his chapter or this chapter with. Now no doubt what we're reading here has been fulfilled time and again throughout history in the sense of a foreshadow. Uh, but its ultimate fulfillment is found in what's referred to, and maybe you've heard of it, the battle or the war of Armageddon. Okay? Many, he says many nations, not just Babylon. Okay? So many nations. This is a different invasion. This is not the Babylonian invasion. 
We're talking here, and you can do your own research, but you'll discover that what's in view here, you look in Ezekiel, what, 38, 39, somewhere in there, you're looking at Russia, you're looking at China, you're looking at, um, you know, um, all of the Islamic nations, you know, there are many that you could list that surround Israel. They'll all come against Israel, but what we're reading here is what they don't know. He says what they don't know, they're going to come against you. They're going to surround you. They think they're going to defile and destroy you. But what they don't know is that God will fight for them. Okay, we're going to close out, but we're going to do it in Zechariah chapter 12. One more thing I'm asking you to turn to, okay? Just turn to the right, probably about a sixteenth of an inch to an eighth, maybe, somewhere in between. Zechariah chapter 12, okay? When you get there, give me an amen or something. Wow! Man, give that guy a prize. Zechariah chapter 12. Okay? And we're going to look, beginning in the very first verse of Zechariah chapter 12, and we read the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. What a radical description. Think about everything we just read. Who is God? He is the one who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Upon conception. Pow! Right? And I, I, I'm not going to digress because we're running out of time. Um, but he says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. Notice, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it, in that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion, its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the wood pile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place Jerusalem. Now, you can read through the rest of that chapter. He speaks of the fact that this is just like this is prior, this is on the cusp, on the edge. This is what's happening just before Jesus returns. And, that they, and then we go on to see that this is the passage that you've heard of when it says, then they shall look. When Jesus comes again, they shall look upon Him whom they have pierced, and their eyes will be opened, and they'll receive Him as their Messiah. Now go over a chapter or two. Let's go to chapter 14, okay? Just flip over if you need to. Chapter 14, look in the very first verse. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather... Notice who's doing it? God's doing it. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. 
Now, again, he will speak of the return of Jesus, his touching down. He'll, he'll literally descend. Remember there in Acts chapter 1, the Bible, when he's, the angels, they're sitting there looking up, and the angels say to the disciples, why are you standing around gazing up in heaven? This same Jesus whom you saw ascend will come again. He will descend in like fashion. Zechariah speaks of that. He descends down upon the Mount of Olives. It will split in two. I mean, like the geographic region will just, the tectonic plates will shift and a river will begin to run through it. Okay? And he speaks of all of this. Now look at verse 12. And uh, Karen, you want to, we're going to close here. So if you would come on up. Look at verse 12. We read, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh Notice this, you guys. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, and their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouth. That sounds kind of nuclear, doesn't it? Think about that. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And here we go. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. This is what Mike is talking about. When the spoils of war will be dedicated to the Lord. Nations will assemble against Israel, but they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. That in fact, He has gathered them there like sheaves to a threshing floor. Think about that. They're being drawn like a moth to the flame, and God will strengthen Israel. It says that the horn, think of the ox, the ox or the, the, the measure of strength, okay? He says your strength will be like an iron horn and your hooves like bronze. Bronze, uh, the, the metal in Scripture of judgment, the brass, the bronze. So the idea is that the Gentiles will be gathered against Israel and they will be trampled in judgment. And all the spoils of war will be dedicated to the Lord of all the earth as Israel is established as the global superpower and the millennial kingdom of Christ is ushered in. Wow. Listen, I know it sounds incredible. But surely the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All I can tell you guys, tell you guys, make sure you are on the right side of the line. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender and live your life for Jesus Christ. He has made a way where there is no way. And so I would exhort you, I would admonish you, I would plead with you, dedicate, consecrate your life to Him, even today. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the hope the blessed assurance we have in Christ. And we hasten the day of His rule and reign upon the earth. We welcome His rule and His reign upon the throne of our hearts. So God, teach us what it means to lead lives set apart to You, bringing honor and glory to You.